Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to episode 166 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope that you're all doing well. <laughs> that was a very enthusiastic I'm John today. Well, I'm so happy to be here today, so <laughs> is that a problem? <laughs> no. So we hope that you're all in the mood for some true crime today. And as always, stick around at the end if you are new to our Patreon page because we'll be giving you an individual shout out. And if you want ad-free episodes and two bonus full-length true crime couple episodes a month and more enthusiasm from John. That's me. Then <laughs> please join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. Okay, so now that we got through the tough stuff, I think I know the answer. But John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Yes, I am. <laughs> is that is that enthusiastic enough for you? No, that's, you are <laughs> enthusiastic today. The city of Kirtland, Ohio, has been called the city of faith and beauty. And I think it's an appropriate name, considering the fact that it certainly has both. Kirtland sits in southern Lake County, which borders Lake Erie. And apart from being just a 15-minute drive from the shores of one of the Great Lakes, the community has a charming small-town feel, with properties that are acres wide on the outskirts of town and tree-lined streets within the town proper. So beauty, check. And now what about the faith? You cannot speak about Kirtland, Ohio, without mentioning the LDS Church. Kirtland was known for being the early headquarters of the LDS movement, for six years beginning in 1831 after the arrival of Joseph Smith. And that is obviously not the same Joseph Smith as in our recent Patreon episode. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, two totally different Joseph Smiths. It is also the site of the movement's first temple, and it is aptly named the Kirtland Temple. The temple was built in 1836. Many who attended the church after the building of the temple claim to have seen heavenly visions and the appearance of heavenly beings. And it is for this reason that the Kirtland Temple remains a place of importance to the LDS community. It also represents the first time members of the faith came together to build something as a community. So that's another reason as to why it holds a deep meaning. Once the main body of the church moved westward, the ownership of the temple came into question. Now, please give me some grace here, because it was a little difficult deciphering what took place with the temple in relation to the splits that happened in the church, because there seemed to be many. And we all know that religion is often complicated and always emotional. So if I make any mistakes, I do apologize in advance. But from what I could gather, of those that traveled westward, um, there was a split. And there was a group that settled in Missouri, and they became a part of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is now known as the Community of Christ. And the reorganized Church had relationships with the people that stayed in Ohio. So basically, the community, from what I could gather, again, I don't want to sound like I know what's going on, but... What it seems like is there was a community in Missouri and Ohio that was the reorganized church, 
And then the LDS community then went on to go to Utah. Okay. And of course, that's very generalized. And I know that it's probably a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. But it's important to talk about the relationship between the group that settled in Missouri and the group that settled in Ohio, because the fact that those two communities have a relationship has a lot to do with this case that we're going to talk about. So before I get into that, I just want to say that once the group split, there was a legal battle over the Kirtland Temple and which group had ownership over it, not spiritually, but legally. And that civil court case is going to happen in 1961. And it's the reorganized church that ends up keeping the legal claims to the Kirtland Temple. And that's because of something called adverse possession, which is basically ownership established by continuous possession. So squatters rights. (laughs) Thank you for putting it in layman's terms. Yeah. (laughs) They never left, so it's legally theirs. Gotcha. Okay. So like I said, the history is important because the fact that the Ohio community and the Missouri community are closely aligned with each other is what is going to bring a man named Jeffrey Lundgren to Ohio in the first place. In 1984, the RLDS offered the 35-year-old a job as a tour guide and a Sunday school teacher at the Kirtland Temple. Now, I know that the RLDS is now called the Community of Christ, but in all the documents pertaining to this event, in the time that this case is going to happen, they still recognize themselves as the RLDS. So that's how I'm going to refer to them throughout the podcast. But I do recognize that they're now called the Community of Christ. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Lundgren had been very popular and successful in Missouri. And when he was offered the position in Ohio, he saw it as an opportunity for upward movement within the church. So he moved with his wife, Alice, and their four children, the youngest of whom was only four years old at the time. According to those who knew the family, Lundgren had a good marriage with his wife in the beginning of their relationship. The two both allegedly grew up in households with abusive fathers, so that was something that they bonded over. However, as the years went on, Lundgren got frustrated with the lack of financial success. So it was reported after the birth of the couple's third child in 1979 that Lundgren grew abusive towards his wife. And on one occasion, he sent her to the hospital with a ruptured spleen. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's intense. There was an incident where he had pushed her into a door and the handle had hit her so hard that it ruptured her spleen. That's crazy. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. To Lundgren, this move to Ohio was going to change everything for him and his family. But in reality, he was seemingly turning into his own father and becoming obsessive and radical in his own religious beliefs. And it's that temperament that's going to play out in Ohio and going to lead to our case today. When the Lundgren family chose to move from Missouri to Ohio, they weren't alone in their journey. Other members of the RLDS went with them. One of the members that chose to go to Ohio was a woman named Debbie. Debbie had grown up in the RLDS church. Her mother had been a member, as had her grandmother before her. As far back as she could remember, her faith was a large part of her family's traditions, 
and it was to her the most significant thing in her life. Debbie had been a little bit lost in Missouri. She was going through a rough time, and she felt as if she was at rock bottom. She'd just gotten divorced. Her grandfather, to whom she was very close, had just passed away, and she was in a tremendous and overwhelming amount of debt. So she was feeling as if her life was over before it could ever really begin. And she was feeling upset because she felt like as she was getting older that she would never marry again and she wouldn't get that happy ending. So when her mother told her that her cousin Jeffrey had been offered a job in Ohio, the idea of moving from Missouri to Ohio began to creep in her mind. So now growing up, she was never really close with Jeffrey. Um, It's from my understanding. Well, I really have a very narrow understanding of the LDS community because I really just get my information from the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I knew you were going to so say that. that's what I'm going on. I knew you were going to say that. And you know what? The sad part is I know less than you, and I get my information from Real Housewives as well. So is that bad? I mean, I feel like that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but yes. you know what? I'm open-minded. No, but I did. Yeah. Lo- no, but I'm just saying like this aspect of it is that it does seem like within the community that people are there, – there's a lot of cousin-like relationships. And that they refer to each other as their cousins, even if they're like second or third cousins. Right. But in this case, these two were actually first cousins with each other. So their mothers were sisters. Okay. So I just wanted to add that. And I couldn't not talk about the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Of course. I mean, you can never pass up an opportunity for that. This is a phenomenal season. I'm glad that Jen's gone and we could really get into things. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I could talk about that. I could do a side episode on the real housewives of Salt Lake no City. no no that's okay no we don't need that <laughs> no john does watch no don't, don't blow up don't blow up my spot <laughs> see now everybody knows so it's just part of you being a supportive husband so i appreciate it you know what that's true he pretends he doesn't watch but then he'll walk by and he's like i think i really like whitney she's nice well i mean you know you have to support especially when we live in a house where it's you know it's on all the time yeah exactly <laughs> what can i do bravo or true crime So Debbie knew that her cousin Jeff was the kind of person who studied scripture. So it was no surprise to her that he had been offered a job because he had been a really important member of the community in Missouri and people were starting to listen to him, almost like follow him. So it seemed almost natural, this progression in his career within the church. Her mother agreed that Debbie should maybe try to go to Ohio. And they discussed that maybe there she would be able to have a fresh start. And that if Jeff and his family were going, even if they weren't close, at least she had a little piece of home with her and that she could always, you know, go and talk to Alice, who is Jeff's wife, if she needed to. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't think that that's just like in this kind of community. If you really think about it, that's unlike every family. Like, if you have family members living in a town and you're like, oh, this seems like a great place to raise a family, you're going to go there because, one, it's nice, right? And second of all, because you have family that you can see all the time. Right. So that regardless of it being, you know, in you know, in real world or within this story, it makes sense. Yeah, I think she would have been a little more apprehensive to go if it was just by herself. But because there are people that she's familiar with going it kind of gave her the boost she needed to start her life over again. Right. And it would be easy to do to like make new friends and make contacts, especially when your cousin 
seems like everyone's kind of gravitating towards him because of maybe his bravado or the way he carries himself. So it's like a perfect situation for them. Yes, it would be if this wasn't a true crime podcast. Well, we didn't get there yet, but I could see where, where, where this is going. <laughs> so Debbie was not alone in her thought process. However, she was the first to leave Missouri and go on to Ohio. In the years that followed, many others followed suit. Jeffrey Lundgren, although frustrated with himself and his place in life, had been able to build up a significant following in Missouri. He was charismatic, and he spoke of Scripture and the Word of God with so much passion and conviction that members of the RLDS Church enjoyed attending his Bible studies. They would be sad to see him go, but none is sad as the Averys. Dennis Avery and his wife Cheryl had become devoted followers of Lundgren while he was in Missouri. And when Jeffrey announced that he would be taking a job in Ohio, the couple had been disappointed. In the years that followed, the Averys had felt on the outside of the RLDS community in Missouri. And the thought that maybe they too could have a new start in a new state and that the community in Ohio may be more welcoming began to appeal to them. That also meant that they would be able to attend studies and sermons given by Jeffrey again, whose get-togethers they missed very much. So in April of 1978, the couple, along with their three daughters, 15-year-old Trina, 13-year-old Rebecca, and 7-year-old Karen, packed up their things and moved to a rental house in Madison Township, which is just outside of Kirtland. The Averys really moved to Ohio on blind faith. They were able to sell their home in Missouri, and after the mortgage had been paid off, they only received $19,000. Now, of course, you know, that's a lot of money in 1987, but it's not a lot to sustain a family of five for a significant amount of time in which the two parents are actively seeking jobs. I was just going to say, I mean, that is blind faith. I mean, to make a move with your entire family, not knowing what you're going to do for work, that would be super unsettling. I don't think I could ever do that. Well, the one thing about the RDLS community and the LDS community is that they are very tight-knit and supportive. So I think because they felt like they had that safety net that they would be able to I see. make the move a little bit more easily. Yeah. The plan was to live off of that money until they were able to find jobs in Ohio that would help them support their new rental house and family. To say that when the family got to Ohio that they were vulnerable, though, would be a tremendous understatement because even if the community is super supportive, they're now reliant on this community or reliant on other people, and that puts you in a state where you are emotionally and financially vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, you're at the whim of your cousin here, for for instance, or, you know, the rest of them, you know, like that's a really bizarre place to be in because now it's like you got to watch every move that you make and you need to appease everyone around yeah. you. Whereas if you were able to handle your own going into that situation, you'd be fine to make your moves and do what you need to do and not feel pressured to do what they want you to do. Right. And this is like a really, I don't want to say controversial topic, but the... RDLS church and the LDS church are supportive communities, but there are, you know, as there are problems in every religious community, there are problems within them. So yeah. that's what we're we're choosing not to 
address that in this podcast because what happens goes so far beyond this community. Gotcha. Yeah. But I think it's that mindset that is created within this religious community of togetherness is what allows this man to use it as a stepping stone to be manipulative. Come and, you know, do what you need to do. We'll take care of you. It's like it's just a front to get you there. Well, I think that people that are coming into a community looking for a sense of belonging within a community, there are oftentimes going to be predators in the wings looking at people who are vulnerable. Yeah. And oftentimes when people seek, they seek comfort in religion and that's when they can be taken advantage of by people who are looking to take advantage of that situation. And that's a sad thing because they're they're there to have their spiritual faith and whatever and then it's taken advantage of and that's right. that is sad. Mm-hmm. So another person who moved to Kirtland was a man who was friends with Lundgren by the name of Kevin Curry. The two had served in the Navy together and had bonded there through their LDS faith. He, too, thought the move would be a new start for himself. So, in all, by 1987, Jeffrey Lundgren had a mini following of people who enjoyed his preachings in his cousin Debbie, Kevin Curry, and the five members of the Avery family. So I think you see what is beginning here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but before we go any further, let's take a break to talk about our first sponsor of today's show. Okay, let's get back to the show. So between the time of Jeffrey Lundgren's initial move to Ohio in 1984 and the time that the Averys arrive in Kirtland, he had impressed the elders of the RLDS community. In those almost three years, he had continued to teach Sunday school classes, be a tour guide, and hold Bible studies. However, slowly over time, he'd been given more responsibilities within the church community. He had been given the position of lay minister, meaning that he had not been ordained but could still lead sermons and head youth congregations. He had become a prominent member within the Kirtland RLDS community. During this time, Lundgren and his family had been living in a rented farmhouse located on Euclid Chardon Road, which sits on 15 acres of property. Just as in Missouri, those who appreciated the preachings of Lundgren began to gravitate towards him. Some of these followers have fallen on hard times. One example of that would be a man named Keith Johnson. Keith explained that he had been in a bad place financially and he felt upset because he was the one who was supposed to be taking care of his family. He'd been kind of jumping around from job to job, working in manufacturing in the greater Cleveland area, and it was becoming increasingly difficult to support his wife, Kathy, and their four children. In November of 1987, just five months after the Averys had arrived in town, Keith was facing another layoff at work. And that meant that it would be impossible for him and his family to have any holiday season whatsoever. Keith and his wife had grown close to Jeffrey and his wife Alice. So Keith believed that he could confide in Lundgren about his situation. And Lundgren told him that he would stand by him and his family. So he invited Keith and his family of six to come live with him, Alice, 
and their children until they got back on their feet. And while they were trying to do so, they would be able to enjoy the holiday festivities within their home. Okay. So Keith and Kathy are unbelievably grateful. So they agreed to move in. And I think it's because they were in this situation financially and they were emotionally vulnerable because they feel like they can't provide for their four children that they take him up on this offer. But in reality, it's it's kind of a weird thing. And after the arrival of the Johnsons into the farmhouse, Jeffrey Lundgren made it known amongst those who followed him at the church that he had this open door policy that if anyone needed to, they were welcomed and encouraged to stay with him. So it was reported that at any given time, there were around 18 to 20 people living in the farmhouse. That's actually like, like what? That's weird. It is already at cult status. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like he wants to have these people in there for like total control. Yes. It's easy to be able to control people if they're always under your thumb and you always know what kind of mood they're in, if they're happy with you, if they're listening to what you're saying that you think they should do. It is the first step in ultimate control. That's the worst. All of you know, friggin' emotional vampires. Yeah. It's but crazy. this is what happens and it's kind of like this slow burn over time. And it's it's truly what cult leaders do and it's what they're good at. Well I mean listen, it does make sense because I mean coming out guns blazing to have control and dominance, right, over over everyone, that doesn't work. It's the small little chunks that kind of chip at you over time. That's how you break I hate to say it this way because it sounds so weird and, and like that I would say it, but it is truly how you break down a human soul, like yeah. chip, you know, chip by chip, because that some people can only handle so much before they just give in to whatever someone else is trying to do. Right. Right. You know, if it's forcefully done it in one shot, someone can just be like, no, nah, it's OK, dude, I'm good. But like that, like Slowly that over time. Yes. Well, I think first what Jeffrey Lundgren does is he creates a really good community. So Keith Johnson reported that. In the beginning days of living at the farm, everything was wonderful, that it was just like a warm experience. Everyone was always helping each other, laughing, having a good time. And Debbie described it the same way, as she also spent a lot of time at the farm. In fact, Debbie said like it was a religious experience. From the second she crossed over the Ohio border, um, to the time she was living at the Lundgrens, she felt like it was this tremendous weight that had been lifted off of her shoulders. She said it was a camp-like experience, that they all loved each other. They were having this supportive community. They talked about their faith, about their future plans. And I think that was the plan of Lundgren. Make everyone fall in love with this. Yeah, the idea of it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So the first run-in that Jeffrey Lundgren had with law enforcement in Kirtland was when a neighbor had called them because of geese that Lundgren kept on his property that were continually going on to theirs. So a small matter, but it is going to put Lundgren on the radar of the police officers. In April of 1988, this event happens. Uh, police officers get called to the neighbor's house and they hear about you know, what's taking place? And the neighbor told them that, yeah, the geese and the animals are annoying, but they really called more because of general concern. 
that there were always large numbers of people on the farm, people coming and going at all hours of the day and night, and they just thought that something odd was happening at the farmhouse, like it was a cult. Maybe because it is. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Now the town of Kirtland had limited resources when it came to law enforcement. In 1988, there were only four men on the force, and one of them is the chief of police. Wow. Okay. And in 1988, the country, especially middle America, was in the throes of the satanic panic, a fear that swept through the country that made everyone nervous about devil worshipers meeting together in groups and sacrificing children. Well, the law enforcement officers of Kirtland did not know too much about that. And they doubted that something like that would happen in Kirtland of all places, the city of faith and beauty. But they told the neighbor that they would check it out. I mean, I get that, though. Like, I get, like, you thinking, wait, you know, is it possible that, like, this is going on based on, like, so much movement, right, on this property? Correct. So I can see why, like, that would be something to, like, investigate, right? Right. Especially since there's been other things that have transpired over the years. So the officer went to the farmhouse and he was greeted by Alice. She let him know that the geese actually belonged to the landlord and that the landlord was the one who was supposed to be taking care of them. So she would call him and let him know that they were becoming a bit of a problem. The conversation that the man had with Alice was perfectly pleasant and normal and didn't give off any satanic cult vibes. But what did set the officer on edge was the fact that the entire time he was speaking to Alice, Jeffrey had been a total creep standing out by the barn watching them. After he spoke to Alice, he had a brief interaction with Jeffrey Lundgren. When the officer got back to the station, he reported to the chief of police that he believed that something odd was happening at the farmhouse and that Jeffrey Lundgren did have a lot of people up there. And from the small interaction that they had, he got the impression that this man was very anti-police and anti-government. And that is something that makes sense and plays into the past of Jeffrey Lundgren because he was discharged from the Navy. So I feel like he does have this like kind of aggression towards. Like anti-establishment? Yes. Okay. So the instincts of the police officers were correct. Jeffrey Lundgren did feel that way, and he was beginning to make his thoughts and feelings known both to the group of people that were staying at his home and through his preachings at the temple in Kirtland. His preachings spoke of a radical and militant God that wanted his followers to seek retribution to those who did not believe in what they did. He spoke of extreme punishment to sinners and other things that did not align with the peaceful messages of the RDLS church and what they wanted to convey during their services or Bible studies, and especially not by someone who was helping teach the children of their community about their religion. I was just going to say, this guy is teaching the youth of this faith. Yep. And this man is dangerous. Yeah, he could build essentially... An army of like youth. a mili- yeah, like a militant kind of cult. I, I just that think sounds that that's, like so familiar. That's weird. yeah, it does. Yeah. It's like it's <laughs> happened before. Um, it is crazy though. Like, I mean, this guy is dangerous, and and it's always uh, this. Just I could be wrong here, but the what I what I have gathered based on everything that's happened over the years, right, 
is it's always the person that at first was brought in to like either change the culture or bring new light into something. Mm -hmm. Small beginnings, teaching the youth, and then all of a sudden it's like controlling the whole entire uh, congregation. It's like very – it's always a blip on the radar and then turns into this – Something big. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Always. Every single time. Well, the faith the elders in the community had in Jeffrey Lundgren was certainly waning. Like all cult leaders, this was a slow switch of message. Lundgren tested the waters several times before coming forth with his messages of fire and brimstone. And when he delivered them, he knew that it was to the right audience, those who became his followers. So he would sprinkle things in in his sermons, and he would notice people that were nodding their head, agreeing with him, sitting closer to the front, and then he would ask them to come to his individual Bible studies, which was then when he would preach the message that he wanted to be delivered. Yeah, it's like evil breadcrumbs. Well, these people know how to certainly seek out victims. Right. He was literally scanning the crowd to see who he could maybe pull. Yes. It's like, like I said, evil breadcrumbs. Literally, it's to see who will bite. Mm-hmm. That's so weird. So the final nail in the coffin for Jeffrey Lundgren and the RLDS church was the discovery that money was missing from church accounts. Of course it was. Was he buying himself like helicopters and stuff? <laughs> no. Okay. Weapons, most likely. Oh, okay. Well, we've seen that before. Mm, sounds familiar. Yes. But this is pre-Waco. I know. I'm, I'm so glad that we were thinking the same thing because yes. that's what I was thinking, mm-hmm. by the way. Lundgren had been accused of stealing between 25000 and 40000 from the church, like, lockboxes. And because of this, in January of 1988, Lundgren was dismissed as a lay minister and tour guide. Oh, okay. All right. In a statement made by the Kirtland State President, the official statement of the RDLS Church was that Jeffrey Lundgren was let go for ethical and moral issues that are critically important to them. I believe that it was both. It was the messages that he was sending the community, which they felt didn't align with their teachings, and the fact that there was missing money. In addition to him being fired, he was excommunicated from the RDLS faith. That's pretty bad. That's Now he's going to, his rage is going to be all towards the RDLS church. And that's the thing too. This is scary because even though it's great that the church can get someone that is doing things that are wrong out Correct. now that person's unhinged and they and they themselves have a following that i'm sure he will take people away from that church and follow him and he does yeah and that's that's bad but it is good to recognize the fact that they're seeing something nefarious happening in their church and instead of making excuses for that person they then say we're no longer affiliating ourselves with you and that's refreshing to see that's true so but then they are now the target of his anger. Yes. Where at first it was very anti-establishment, now it's anti-RDLS. Well, it has to RLDS, be. RLDS, sorry. That, you know, but but you have to think, though, it has to change. It has to do that. In order for him to keep those people under his thumb, he needs to change the message as it's a personal attack against them. Correct. Not just himself. Mm-hmm. And after this, things escalate in the behavior of Lundgren and accelerate in what he expects from his followers. Yeah. At the time of Lundgren's excommunication, he had 30 followers. 
Some of them lived with him on the farmhouse, and others chose not to. But all of them were deeply devoted to him. But here Lundgren was faced with a problem. He'd been excommunicated from the church. He was angry at the church and wanted his followers to be too. But he had to explain to them why the church was wrong and why they should be angry with them as well. Lundgren convinced his followers that it was he who had made the choice to break from the RLDS church because he had been unhappy with the church leaders and he believed that the church was in apostasy. Now, apostasy is the rejection of Christ by one who is a Christian. So basically, it's the opposite of conversion. It's like you are Christian and now you're denying Christ. And he said that is what the RLDS church in Kirtland was doing. But there was a reason why Lundgren is going this route, why he's saying this. Because if the church is in apostasy, it meant that there had to be a prophet to whom this message was relayed. Okay. And guess who that prophet was? (laughs) Our main man over here. Yep. Yep. Jeffrey Lundgren. Yeah. Now, I know that this seems to be a little much, but like I said earlier, Lundgren had found his audience. What the followers of Lundgren all had in common was the fact that they were all people of faith. That devotion was already there. All of these people were at times in their lives when they were overwhelmed and they were vulnerable and they were in situations where you most likely want to be told what to do because it's hard to make decisions and it makes our lives more simple. And when you're in those positions and you want people to make choices for you or tell you how to get through these difficult times in your lives, it makes you more susceptible to people who have strong messages. Like we learned in our The Twin Flames documentary. That, we, yeah, that's wild. Which is, if you're not watching the Twin Flames documentary on Netflix, I know there's another one out there too. Go watch it now. It is wild. I can't stop thinking about it. When you watch these videos, you're like, really? Like yeah. it was just so bizarre like yeah. and cringy, but wild. What a great uh, story. It, it is good. And similar kind of situations here where they're taking advantage of people who are in vulnerable situations, places in oh, their yeah. lives. So sad. Yeah. So, in addition to the people that Lundgren targeted, and in addition, the people that Lundgren targeted were members of the RLDS church, and they felt disconnected within that community, and they felt as if they were on the outskirts of it. Like I said before, the RLDS community, or just the LDS community in general, it's a very tight-knit community, and they band together. So when you feel disconnected from them or on the outskirts, you feel as if you don't belong. And what Lundgren did was he provided a place for those people to feel as if they had somewhere to go. And, you know, the psychology behind why people join cults is not new. They're looking to fit in. They're in vulnerable positions in their lives. And a predator takes advantage of that. Yeah, or they feel like they're missing something, like they need some sort of purpose, and that's what happens. It's it's sad when these people are taken advantage of. Yes. So for a while at that point, 
Lundgren had been manipulating his core group of followers with his own teachings, which by then had deviated very far from the traditional RLDS teachings. It had become a conservative paramilitary religious cult. What he was preaching to his followers, based on their own testimony, was that those who do not follow what he was preaching should be killed, and the Lord commanded that to be done. Jeez. Because most of the followers were living at the farmhouse with Lundgren, they were shut off from the rest of society, and that groupthink mentality really started to take over, and it became us versus them. Another important aspect as to why it was an easy transition for these 30-some-odd followers was not just the grooming and conditioning of Jeffrey Lundgren, because I don't want to give the man too much credit here, but it was also because of the RLDS religion setting the stage for the belief that a prophet being in existence is not outside the realm of possibility. Okay. In the church, there is the belief that prophets do exist and that at times they are among us. So Lundgren took advantage of that traditional teaching and manipulated it. So basically, bridging the gap of belief was shorter for his followers because of their past faith, and it helped him achieve what he desired most, power and control. The message was, you do what the prophet says, and to them, he's now the prophet. Of course. That is so crazy that that can happen, where someone can seize power like that. And then if you think about it— And manipulate their own beliefs and their faith— to make him be able to take control like that. Right, exactly, to suit his his desire. Um, I also find it so sad because you also now have these 30-plus people that are sadly under his thumb and cannot leave because now they've given up all the ability, like every ability to leave. Yes, and at this point, they're giving him all of their money. I was just going to ask you that. I was actually just going to ask you if no. they gave uh, their possessions to Look him. at us. We're on the same wavelengths, buddy. For real. I, I, I can't <laughs> believe it. And, and now how can you go? How can you leave? You can't, you can't have a savings account. If you are working, you're bringing home the money to him and, and, and nobody else. Like you can't do right. anything for yourself. So, yeah, it's group think, but it's also like group survival. So <sighs> you're invested in this yeah, message. That is really You sad. have to be. Yeah, that is so sad. And now you've brought in your children in because there's a lot of families involved here. Yeah. So once he was excommunicated, he moved all of his followers to the farmhouse so they could live and worship together. The only members of the cult, because I think at this point I'm 100% justified in calling them a cult, that did not live in at the farmhouse or the 15-acre property in general was the Avery family. Okay. Now, there's no reason why that I could find as to why the Averys chose not to live on the farmhouse. Um, It's probably because both of them held full-time jobs and it was just easier for them with their three daughters, like, to just be in a separate house to be able to go to work every day and that, you know, Dennis Avery was kind of like this weak man and Cheryl was very dedicated to Jeffrey's teachings. But I would assume as parents, they'd want to maintain like a modicum of modesty for their two teenage daughters. 
I agree with you. I, I'm just – there's so many questions I have though about that because how does a family survive if they're most likely giving Jeff their money? Well, the way that it worked with the Averys was that they they made a good amount of money. So they gave Jeffrey a percentage of what they were making because they weren't living at the farmhouse. But Dennis Avery also gave Jeffrey Lundgren his credit card to use whenever he wanted. And oh he would just God. pay the bill. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. I know. We need to like become co leaders. And that's probably what... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and that's probably but why not. they were allowed to be off. I'm sure right. that... That's the reason why they were allowed. Because they were giving a lot of money. Yeah. Yes, they were the the ones who were making the most out of anyone in this cult. So in February of 1988, just weeks into this new setup, Lundgren's longtime friend and cult member, Kevin Curry, remember this is the man that served with him in the Navy, decided that things were getting a little too radical for his liking. Okay. He left Kirtland altogether and decided to move to Buffalo, New York. When he got there, his conscience got the better of him, and he paid a visit to the FBI field office there. Someone, wow, doing something. Good job, That's good. Kevin. Good job, Kevin. He told them about his time with Jeffrey Lundgren and let them know that there was a group on a farm that had a large stockpile of weapons and that Jeffrey had something large planned for his 39th birthday, which would be on May 3rd, 1988. He and the other members of the cult were going to take over the Kirtland Temple by physical force and with use of weapons. Now, the reason why this was Jeffrey Lundgren's plan was because, as I said earlier in this episode, the Kirtland Temple is something that is tremendously important to people of the LDS faith. So this is him symbolically taking away the first thing that community built together. Yeah, he's trying to hit home hard. Mm -hmm. But I mean, realistically, like, I mean, how could you really take that by force and not think anything's going to happen? You know what I mean? Well, like he's convincing himself and everybody else that they're just going to storm in there with their guns and take over a, a temple and no one's going to get in their way. Like I'm saying, like police, like police, or or or. Well, there's that's no, crazy. There's really never any like super long term plan. I mean, I guess you're right. When it comes to this, you know. <laughs> I, yeah, I no, you're right. You're right. The FBI agent that took the report informed the Kirtland chief of police, Dennis Yarborough, who, as you know from the geese incident. <laughs> already had the group on his radar but it's difficult because he really doesn't have the manpower he's got four guys on his force and he's one of them yeah that's crazy so in the weeks to come the kirtland police were definitely going to closely monitor the activity of their local cult that's crazy that you just said that in a sentence yeah <laughs> okay but before we get any further into this case, I think it's a good place to take a break and talk to you about our final sponsor of today's show. Okay, let's get back to the show. So while the Kirtland police force began to stake out the farmhouse, taking pictures of all of those who came and went, which was a task that wasn't easy because it meant that basically 25% of their manpower had to be like given to the cult at all times. I mean, that's nuts, though, right? Because you have this whole entire town that things could be going down, but yes. now you can't do anything? Exactly. Like, my whole thing is this. I'm sorry to go off on a tangent. I'll make it quick. 
But if that person goes to the field office in Buffalo and lets them know that this place has all these weapons, they intend to do bodily harm to a church, uh, a temple, no less. Um, you would think that like ATF or FBI would get involved and give the support necessary to this small town. Well, eventually they do. Okay. But this is pre-Waco. Okay. So it's not really on their radar, and they think that the whole country is kind of going crazy in this um, satanic panic sweep. So they're thinking it's not real. It's just sad, though, because it's like you always look at these kind of situations, and then you realize, wow, you know, that could have been prevented. Oh, that, you know, that was a red flag, literally. You know, this, that. But technically, they're not breaking any laws. Well, yeah. Everyone's there of their own free will. They're all allowed to own weapons. But they always end badly. Yeah, because it's a build-up. What up. do you do? It's a, it's a, it's a it's a hard situation because you can watch them, but if they're not doing anything illegal, I mean that's true. That is true. Plus, because I mean, you would need warrants and all these other, you know, all that kind of red tape that that's involved. Right. Yeah. Because as of right now, he's saying that's the plan, but it's it's kind of hearsay right now. It's just sad to see a department literally have to give so much manpower that they can't afford. Yeah, and then you know do. what's really sad too is that people within Lake County kind of looked at Yarborough, who's the chief of police, as like, oh, you're just there's a quote in the newspaper where it says he's just chasing goblins, you know? And he's like, I'm trying to stop a cult, guys. Right. <laughs> Come on, man. This is serious. I've got a cult in my town. <laughs> and I only have four guys. So they're watching them at all times just to make sure. And, you know, Jeffrey Lundgren was moving forward with his plan of retribution for the wrongs that he felt the RLDS church committed against him. He held class almost every day. He used his vast knowledge of the Bible to manipulate passages to make it sound like he and they were doing God's will. But Lundgren was creative in the way that he manipulated the passages of the Bible. He said that the way that God spoke to him was castically, and that's how he interpreted the Bible and how God's messages were given to him. So the way that that works is that he would be given either in like page numbers, passages, or quotes, um, what passages in the Bible he should look at. And if you read the Bible castically, it's you putting the first line of a group of passages or the last line of a group of passages together, and it would come together to convey a message. So God's talking to him in code, and the Bible is the key to that code, basically. Yeah. So Lundgren is able to go through the Bible and find the first sentence or the last sentence of any group of passages and put them together. So he could make the Bible truly say whatever he wanted it to if he was reading it castically. And he was using that to get his followers to do his bidding and say that he was a prophet. How crazy and scary is that? That someone can manipulate a holy book. Text like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wild. So as Lundgren told his members that they were going to be planning an attack on the Kirtland Temple on his birthday because the church elders had denied and demeaned him, the prophet, he spoke of the military tactics 
that he had learned about in the Navy. So he's basically militarizing them. The followers stated that at this time, they felt as if they were an army for God and that they were about to go into war. They were going to seek vengeance for what happened and take back what Lundgren was calling theirs. He yelled to his followers during one of the farmhouse sessions, One day when the Lord wants his house, no power will stay his hand. They were going to reclaim the keys to the kingdom. I'm just sitting here and I can't even believe that this is taking place. It's wild. Because you know, when, you, when you talk about a case like this, you would think, uh, maybe it's just me. But I would think it would. This is like way long ago. But we're talking about like the mid to late eighties. The late yeah, eighty eight. Yeah, like it seems that this would be long time ago. No, you know, this will <sighs> probably happen again. No, like, I don't. I don't in want it to present time. Like no. it could be happening right now. It could be. So the plan, and this is what finally drove Kevin Curry out, was to attack the temple with their arsenal of guns and knives. They were ordered not just to kill anyone who resisted, but also behead them. What? Yes. Lundgren kept pushing and pushing the members of his cult to see just how far they would go. Like, what will they agree to do for me? And so far, all but Kevin had seemed to be on board. But still, Lundgren questioned their loyalty, a tactic often used by cult leaders. If you make everyone on edge and constantly need to show loyalty to you, you create this accusatory atmosphere where everyone will try and go overboard to please you, always one-upping each other to be in your good graces. And at this point, also, all the members had pooled their money together, so he had complete control over every aspect of their lives, and they're all trying to impress him with their devotion. Well, at that point, that's the only thing that they can do. Yeah, it's the because only everything else has been taken anyway. Have. Right. The police officers were being told by the FBI to keep up their surveillance based on the tip that had come in from Kevin. However, they did not think that there would be a follow through on the threat. So that's the message from the FBI. We don't think this is credible. But the officers of the town, the ones invested in the well-being of their community, were rightfully nervous. They took to, in particular, um, one officer, Rob Andelsek, and he becomes a really big aspect of this case, one of the police officers of Kirtland, walking the streets at night just to ensure the safety of the residents. Like, Andelsek was not on duty, and the small force didn't have the money for overtime. So he would just, in his own time, walk the streets at night to make sure that the residents were safe. Now that's nice. But this is what I'm talking about. So like, I understand that like the the FBI or whatever, they might think like, okay, this is just another wild goose chase or like, like the newspaper said, they're going after goblins or whatever. But if you have the police saying, you know, Hey, uh, (laughs) like we're surveillancing them. We're, we're literally putting a lot of our manpower, (laughs) which is not much, into doing this, then it is credible. In my opinion, if you're doing surveillance, that is credible. That means that you have a feeling that something is not right here. It's not sitting right and it's dangerous. That right. should be enough for any some kind of involvement that would take it to a next level of maybe more professional surveillance where 
you know, they've done well, less for of people in a van watching all day long. You know what I mean? Right. Well, they're thinking this isn't a credible threat. That's what the FBI is saying, that they don't think this is going to be follow through. But that's hard to say when these are the police officers of the community and they're going to have to deal with the fallout. Right. And these are people they love and are supposed to be serving and protecting. So just before the attack on May 3rd, a Kirtland resident had called the police. Officer Andelsek responded. The woman told Andelsek that she believed that there was a cult living at 8671 Euclid Chardon Road and that Jeffrey Lundgren's son, Caleb, had been telling the neighborhood children that they should watch out because the demons were going to emerge from the ground in May. And that's when the plan was for. Oh, wow. Okay. So this piqued the interest of Andelsek because the attack on the temple was supposed to happen on May 3rd. The woman was reassured that they would handle it. Yarborough, the chief, was told about this encounter And although the FBI offices in Cleveland told him that he shouldn't be worried about any attack on May 3rd, he decided that he wasn't going to take his chances. On May 2nd, he called Jeffrey Lundgren in and asked him to come to the station. He confronted him about the plans that he believed that Lundgren had to take over the temple the following day and whether or not he had a stockpile of weapons that he was going to use. Lundgren denied that the takeover was planned or would happen. He also said that he had what he would consider a normal amount of firearms. We will never know if Jeffrey Lundgren was going to back down on his own volition or he was spooked by the chief. But what we do know is that when he went back to the farmhouse that day, he told his followers that the temple takeover would not be taking place as a result of a conversation that he had with a higher power. (laughs) Of course. The Kirtland Police Department continued to watch the activities of the cult and occasionally relay that information to the FBI. While this was happening, the activities of Jeffrey Lundgren were continuing, but for another member of the cult, it would prove to be just too much. Just like with Kevin Curry, a woman who identifies herself as Shar. I think that's just the name she wants to be referred to as. She didn't want to give her full name. She doesn't want the public to know who she is. Right. Um, she said that she had to leave because of the atmosphere and increasing radicalism of both Lundgren and his followers. So now this is our second member who has defected. In September of 1988, Shar called the Kirtland Police Department and was told to speak with Andelsack because he was the point person that was handling all of the information regarding the town cult. <laughs> she told him that she had to leave, that she was one of the two that had. Andelsack knew that she was talking about Kevin Curry. He was the one that had come forward and went to the FBI in New York. She said that she had two friends that were still inside, and her goal was to get them out before something bad happened to them or they did something that she knew they would regret. Andelsek asked if he could tape the conversation that they were having and she gave him permission to. She said that the final straw for her had been when she walked into the dining room one day and she saw a table filled with handguns. She had always thought everything Lundgren was saying was talk, but it seemed as if things were amping up and that something bad was going to happen. 
and that's why she had to leave. Andelsek confirmed with her that this was a cult. He asked her flat out if what she thought was going on was a cult, and she said without a doubt that they all follow him. He asked her about the plans regarding the temple and a purge, and because that had been the words that Kevin Curry had used. And the reason Andelsek was asking her about it was he knew that Kevin Curry had been out of the cult for a long time, so he assumed that the plans may have changed since then. And she said yes, that that is still the plan. Only he doesn't call it a purge. He refers to it as redeem or redeeming the vineyard. The plan was to get the temple back. She said that Jeff was telling them that the time was going to come where they would need to cleanse the vineyard and that people would have to die because they had taken the Lord's temple and defiled it. He wanted to not only kill whoever was in the temple, but also the people that lived in the homes adjacent to the temple, because that was where the elders of the church lived with their families. Yeah, this plan's getting in, like deeper and deeper down the hole. Yeah. So she explained that Lundgren had been fired from his teachings because they were inconsistent with the beliefs of the church. And this was something that the police were only beginning to find out then. Before she ended the conversation, Andelsek wanted his proof on tape one more time. So he asked, Is Jeffrey Lundgren planning to kill people? And she said, That is definitely his goal. After a conversation with the chief, Andelsek again reached out for federal help. This time, in addition to contacting the FBI, he also contacted the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, because of the amount of weapons that he was tipped off about Lundgren having. Now remember, this is five years pre-Waco siege, so the concept of an armed cult wasn't something that the ATF has necessarily dealt with yet, so it isn't something that was like on their radar. And when he contacts them, they're kind of like, we don't know what to do with this. What about the state police? Well, the county police are definitely going to begin to get involved, not the state police yet. Okay. Agents from both agencies came out to hear the evidence that the Kirtland Police Department had. After hearing the tape, seeing the pictures, and the evidence that Andelsek and Yarborough had collected over the years, the FBI agreed to get some agents together so they and the local police department could confront Lundgren and his cult members together. However, this is something that would have to wait because it would take time for the agents to close up other case because it would take time for the agents to close up other cases. And the next thing that they would deal with would be the Kirtland cult. So this is a very interesting timeline that develops here. They know that they have to go confront this cult, but they have to wait to do so for legal matters, for bureaucratic reasons. And what happens in between this time period And the timing in which they decide to go confront the cult is very bizarre. Okay. So during this time, Lundgren knew that something was going on with law enforcement. And he had an idea that most likely it was because they knew of his plans because of both Kevin and Shar leaving. 
and most likely they talked to them. So it was as if he felt like the walls were closing in on him. Lundgren told his members that the redeeming of the vineyard would happen, but it would have to be temporarily tabled because they had to do something else first. According to the scriptures from Enoch, people were to go into the wilderness and the church was supposed to come out of the wilderness. So we go in as a group, we come out as a church. So he was saying that in order for them to prepare to leave for the wilderness and have this religious experience that was supposed to happen while they were there, um, and once they emerge from that wilderness, they'll be ready to redeem the vineyard. Okay, okay. That, mm-hmm. uh, what are they going to go live out in the woods? Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, no. So he told all the members that they should have all of their clothes packed at all times so they could be prepared to enter the wilderness when the call came to do so. They all listened, including the Averys, who were still living in their rented home in Madison Township. According to Lundgren, as the time grew closer for the group to enter the wilderness, Lundgren had been more frequently castically reading scripture. As he was doing so, a message came to him that called for a sacrifice. Stop it. He said... There had to be a blood sacrifice. And what that meant was that there had to be a willing sacrifice or death of a person or persons that had been sinning and that only then, once blood was spilled, that the group would seek God upon their entrance into the wilderness. You have got to be kidding me, right? So if we kill somebody or if someone chooses to be a sacrifice... We will see God when we enter the woods. But that is so far from, I'm sure, obviously, what their teachings are. I mean, this is just some other BS that he has created. Yeah, but he's built up this BS for years, and they're all in. That is just so, so scary. I don't know what I would do if I was ever in a situation like that. It's a lot. Included in Lundgren's daily teachings now was the concept that he believed that one-third of the world was made to live for Christ, one-third of the world would have to fight for Christ, and the other one-third was made to be destroyed. Wow. (laughs) At the time, there were just under 30 members, so Lundgren said that this applied to them as well, and that it meant that 10 of their members— would have to be destroyed. Unbelievable. He said that where they were going, if they wanted to see the Lord, they could not enter the wilderness with people who had sinned. So that meant that they had to be killed because that would also be their blood sacrifice. There was to be no discussion about this because he had read it in Scripture. And when Lundgren read something in Scripture... It was never up for debate. Also, that fun camp-like feeling that existed in the farmhouse was long gone. Now the members of the cult were not even allowed to talk to each other without permission. If they were found talking to each other, Lundgren called it murmuring, and it was considered to be sinful. 
and being sinful was something that you most certainly did not want to do during that time because the people that were sinning were the ones that were going to be one of the 10 that would be killed. So now, because of this latest prophecy, you've created a witch hunt of sorts amongst this cult community because everyone's trying to find out who the sinners are among them. And it's not you. So in order to protect yourself, you're going to accuse someone else. Yeah, it's like who's going to be voted off the island. Not only that, but I mean, you also have built this um, with this new prophecy or whatever being told. uh, You're also dealing with the fact that now none of them can actually talk amongst each other to actually be like, hey, do you think this is weird? Exactly. So now no one one else at this moment is probably going to bounce and leave. No, and they're all trying to prove their devotion to him because they don't want to be one of the ones who die. They don't want their families to be one of the ones who die. And they want to seem like they're not sinners. So now they're being overly devoted. And then by him doing this, this is 100% all in now. Yes. And everyone's in self-preservation mode. Another thing he did here was take power away from the men. Lundgren at this point wanted complete control of their lives. And he didn't want anyone thinking that they could physically have one up on him. So he kind of got together the strongest of the men and in a subtle way told them that they were going to be okay. Okay. Because he knew that if these strong men did all get together, it would be very easy for them to overtake him. So he needed them on his side. Which makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And eventually he's going to tell the group that he had the list of 10 people who needed to be sacrificed. Oh my God. People were terrified. No one knew who was on that list. Even the men who were made to feel safe felt powerless in the defense of their families. Because what if their children or their wife was on that list? Lundgren was now teaching his daily lessons with a loaded gun next to him. And if he felt like anyone were questioning anything he was saying, he would point the loaded gun in their face. These poor people... Need to, like, all just get up and leave. Yeah. But I know it's not that simple, so. (laughs) He also made it clear if anyone were to leave, like Kevin and Char, that they would be killed. Yeah, see, so now he's even threatened them with murder. That's insane. So as I said, in a witch hunt, those on the periphery of society are the ones who are often accused. History most certainly repeated itself here. And... In this case, those on the periphery were the Avery family. And in this case, those on the periphery were the members of the Avery family. The family was always on the outside of what was happening within the group because they chose not to live full-time in the farmhouse. And presumably, Lundgren believed that Dennis Avery would be an easy target because he didn't have close relationships with any of the other men within the group and he was not physically intimidating. And he had, as Jeffrey Lundgren always liked to tell people, a meek personality. Dennis seemed to just go along with what his wife Cheryl wanted, and she had become a very enthusiastic member of the group. She was always trying to prove herself and fit in with the other women. But unfortunately, Cheryl's overzealousness kept her on the outs with most of the women in the the cult. 
It was a sad situation for the seemingly desperate family. And it makes me wonder what the relationship was like between Cheryl and Dennis. We don't know what it was like behind closed doors. And I, it makes me think that if Cheryl did have this overzealousness of wanting to be a part of this community, why they didn't live there. And I have to think that Dennis couldn't have been that meek because he must have said for one reason or another, I don't want my daughters living there. Right. There must have been some kind of pushback or they would have just been living there. But and, and you know what? When I'm thinking about this, when when I'm thinking about the wife, right, the first thing that comes to mind, I know it sounds weird, but it's almost like in the movie The Titanic with uh, the unsinkable Molly Brown when like she's trying to fit in with like the elite yes. kind of thing. It's like that kind of atmosphere. But that's what I kind of correlated with. You just with. love bringing everything back to Titanic. I love Titanic. <laughs> So Lundgren always had no qualms about telling people what he thought of Dennis Avery. He thought he was a weak man that allowed his wife to make all the decisions. But when asked why he allowed them to stay around, Lundgren would always say it was for the money. The Averys were able to attain good paying jobs, and they were quick to give their money to Lundgren and allow him to use their credit cards for anything he may need. At this point in our timeline, we're in April of 1989. Seven months had passed since Shar had left the group, and Lundgren began talking about going into the wilderness and a need for a sacrifice before they did so. If some action didn't happen soon, Lundgren's house of cards would fall. He knew he needed to act, and the Averys would have to be the sacrificial lambs because if he chose anyone else within the group, he would have trouble on his hands because they all had emotional attachments to each other because they'd been living together for years. It wouldn't affect their community if this family died because they don't live within their community. Right. They're the most easiest target. So to keep this going, he would have to kill the Averys. And if he were to kill the couple, he'd have to kill their children as well. Lundgren also knew that this was a test for his followers. Would they go with it? On April 16th, Lundgren bought three guns from a local gun store. Among those purchased was a 45 Colt. This would later become the murder weapon. All three guns and their ammunition was purchased using the credit card of Dennis Avery. Now that's wild. But of course, right? Yeah. I mean... The following day, on the 17th, to keep the fear and control, Lundgren told the men of the cult to gather in the large red barn that sat next to the farmhouse. The barn held a lot of personal belongings of all the members, so he ordered them to clear out a section of the barn and begin to dig. They were told to dig until they felt like the hole was large enough. As the men worked digging the dirt floor of the barn up, Lundgren told them that they were digging a grave. The atmosphere was tense, because although the men were made to feel as if they were safe, they didn't know if they were digging their own graves, the graves of their own families. They didn't know what was happening. I also think that's a power move as well. Yeah. To keep them on their toes. I think he enjoyed that, too. Oh, he definitely enjoyed yeah. that. Eventually, the 8 by 8 hole was approximately 3 feet deep. What was scary to them was that the hole wasn't deep, but it was big. Okay. Hmm. 
Lundgren then called all of his members together for dinner that night. All of them? Everyone. Ooh, okay. Isn't this scary? Yes. The <laughs> members that survived said the atmosphere of that night was something they will never forget. It was incredibly foggy, so visibility was low around the farmhouse. The Averys came over and the entire group ate dinner together, knowing it was going to be some of their last meals. The kids all thought it was just another night together, so they noisily played with each other as the adults somberly ate and barely spoke. Murmuring must have been allowed this night, because one by one, the men began to leave the house, while the women cleaned up after the meal, and the children were entertained by their video games. Eventually, the only man left in the house was Dennis. They must have all known then. How could they not have? Eventually, a member of the cult by the name of Ron Luff was told by Lundgren to go inside and get Dennis and bring him out to the barn. In his pocket, Luff had a stun gun. When he went into the house, he found Dennis and told him that he wanted to show him what the family wanted to take into the wilderness. So he followed. As soon as the two men entered the barn, Luff used the 50,000-volt stun gun on Dennis. Dennis screamed out in pain and yelled, No, no, this isn't necessary. Please, this isn't necessary. Dennis Avery was then knocked to the ground by Damon Lundgren, Daniel Kraft, Greg Winshop, and Richard Brand. The men then worked to bind Dennis' wrists and ankles with duct tape. They then covered his mouth with it as he'd been yelling. Dennis could no longer yell out for help. The men carried him to the pit that they had dug earlier that day. Dennis was able to get up on his knees. He looked up at Jeffrey Lundgren, who was standing over him holding a gun. The man that he had moved his family 800 miles for. The man he gave all his money to. The man he was devoted to and trusted his family with. He looked up at him with mercy in his eyes. Lundgren nodded to Greg Winshop, who then started up a chainsaw to mask the sound of Lundgren shooting Dennis Avery twice with a gun that his credit card paid for. Lundgren made all the men come to the edge of the pit to get a good look at Dennis. He was reminding them that this all could have been them. That's disgusting, honestly. Upon seeing the body of Dennis Avery, his son Damon began to hysterically cry when looking down at the man's body. And for the rest of the night, his father allowed him to kind of be the, the lookout and not be in the barn. But Damon continued to contribute to the crimes that happened that night. Next, Ron Luff went to re retrieve Cheryl Avery. He told her that they needed her help in the barn. She seemed confused, but went without question, as she always did. Once they reached the threshold of the barn, she was surrounded by all the men the same men that had surrounded her husband. She was shaking with fear as they bound her ankles and hands with duct tape. They covered her eyes and mouth. The only solace here was that she didn't have to look upon the body of her dead husband that was next to her. But I'm sure she knew he was there. The chainsaw began again, 
and Lundgren fired three shots into her chest and stomach. Now, I just want to warn you now, before we get further into this, that we're now going to get into what happened to the children. So it gets rough, more rough. Upon hearing the roar of the second chainsaw, the women in the house began to talk. Do you think it's happening now, they asked each other, and they all agreed that they thought it was. This time, when the back door of the farmhouse opened, Ron Luff was there for the children. He told 15-year-old Trina that her mother needed her, and she was let out into the barn. I think the women in the house were relieved to some level that it wasn't their children dying. But they also let this... I can't believe all these people let this happen. Especially let these kids die like this. Especially the mothers in that room. Yep. I mean, I, I feel like... I mean, I know like we're putting a lot on, on a situation them, right. that we don't know what it's like to be in, but... I mean, they're mothers at the end of the day, right? It's just like you, you thought you would think there would be some sort of compassion that maybe this isn't right, you know? Right, as these innocent yeah, children are dying. Exactly. And like, how is that the word of God or anything right. that he's been talking about? So, as he's leading 15 year old Trina out to the barn, 18 year old Damon Lundgren alerted his father. They're on their way. Trina's fate was similar to her mother's. The men surrounded her, taped her feet and hands together, and I cannot even begin to imagine the terror that that 15-year-old girl felt in that moment, wondering what was going to happen to her with really all sad. these men surrounding her like that. Yeah. They wrapped her head in duct tape, but left an opening so she could breathe. Trina was brought into the pit. She could feel that on either side of her were bodies. And she was probably so scared. And I don't even know if her brain would have connected the fact that the bodies next to her were that of her parents. Lundgren tried to shoot the girl in the back of the head. He made contact with her head, but when Trina yelled out in pain, he feared that he had missed, and he shot her three more times. Again in the back of the head, and twice in the back. He didn't even have the guts to look at her face on. So Ron Luff went back into the farmhouse again and called out, Becky, Karen, who wants to see horses in the barn? Both 13-year-old Becky and 7-year-old Karen jumped up and ran towards the back door with excitement. Luff told them that he could only take one girl at a time. Becky was going to go first because she was the oldest. Luff told Karen that he would be back for her, and she said okay. But Karen realized quite quickly, as her sister was being led out of the house, that she was the only member of the family still there. She went up to Ron Luff's wife, Susan, and asked her where her mother was. Susan told the girl, whom she knew was about to be murdered, that her mother would be right back. Karen said okay, and sat down patiently, waiting for her turn to see the horse. Damon once again announced that their victim was approaching the barn with Luff, and all the men gathered around Becky with duct tape. Confused as to what was happening, she asked what was going on. Brand would later say that they told her that they were just playing a game. They duct taped her hands and ankles and threw her into the pit. Duct tape was over her eyes and mouth, and the chainsaw started again. Lundgren shot the 13-year-old girl in the thigh. Of this moment, Lundgren would later say, 
Her body fell towards her mother's corpse. She was still breathing. I fired again, and when this shot hit her, her hands, which had been in her lap, went forward as if she was reaching to touch her mother's body, as if she instinctively knew that her mother was right there beside her. The second shot penetrated Becky's back. Another one of the men in the barn, who was standing next to the pit, said that Becky fell unconscious. However, she was still breathing and making rasping, gurgling sounds. For some reason, they left her like that. I mean, all of this is so senseless, right? But it's like, that's even worse. Like, I mean, because that's, I mean, not they only... They left they, her to bleed yeah, out. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I can't even get the words out yeah. because it's just, it's just so terrible. That left seven-year-old Karen. Luff returned to the farmhouse to find Karen very excited for her turn with the horses. Luff gave Karen a piggyback ride to the barn, and she laughed with anticipation. How could he do that? I know. I know. It's sick. It's sick. This is like, I mean, these are children, you know? When she was put down in the barn, the rest of the men surrounded her and bound her with duct tape, as they had done the rest of her family. One last time, the chainsaw fired up, and Lundgren walked directly over the tiny body of seven-year-old Karen Avery, who sat unknowingly with the bodies of her entire family surrounding her. And the supposed man of God shot that little girl in the head and then again in the chest. An entire family murdered because their parents put their faith in the wrong man. You're right. That night, Jeffrey Lundgren met with all of the adult members of the group and told them that they were not to say a word about what happened or their families would meet the same fate. What had been done had been done because the Averys were sinners, and this would allow them to see the Lord when they went into the wilderness. The scripture had told them so. Lundgren told them that they would be tested and that they should not falter. And as if by divine intervention, it was the following day that all four members of the Kirtland Police Department and 18 special agents from the FBI showed up on the farm. Good. So now, think about it. Even though this had been, even though Shar told them months prior about this and so much bureaucratic bullshit had to happen in order for them to get there. Right. The timing that they showed up the day after the murders. Yeah. No, I know. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So now everyone on the farm is thinking they showed up because of what happened, because of their guilty consciences. Right, right. I'm, I think, you know, what's, you know what's interesting about that, though? I think that when, when that officer brought in Jeff a while back, I actually think that that was Jeff's way of accelerating the timeline. Oh, he had to. He had to. Yeah. And I think that they, after that meeting, knew that. Right. And then maybe that's why eventually it, it all added up to them being there and when they did. It. Yeah. Well, either way, the day after a family of five was murdered, their bodies just freshly buried in the barn, 22 law enforcement officers show up at the farm. They had no idea the murders had happened and the members of the cult thought they did. The goal of the police officers and the FBI agents was to get probable cause for an arrest warrant. So they split up all the members of the cult and spoke with them individually. But no one faltered. They were all so scared. No one said anything, 
except that they were there of their own free will, and they knew that Jeffrey Lundgren was a peaceful man, that he was caring and loving and a generous person. He was all of their best friends, and he would never harm anyone. After the interviews, the FBI told the Kirtland Police Department that unfortunately there was insufficient probable cause and they couldn't aid them in the investigation any further. Oh my gosh. No probable cause. The agents didn't know what had happened, and neither did the police, but their visit rattled them all. After the murders, Lundgren had felt as if he had increased and cemented control in all the members of his cult, and the following day visit from law enforcement had threatened to ruin it all. But what it showed him was that no one turned against him, even though they were scared. Not knowing what else to do, he brought them into the wilderness. <laughs> but now what's he going to do when God doesn't appear? You know, he's kind of stuck right now. Well, I think that like it's either going to go one of two ways. He's either going to make uh, make another way out using the scriptures to like or you know, he could just shout out, "Hell, oh, there's a sign. It's a bird in the sky." You know, and like you know, it can go down a path he'll, like that. Yeah, he'll just it change work. it however he needs to, which is what he's done up to this point, right? Right. Well, Officer Andelsack, who was still doing surveillance, noted that on the day after the interviews, it looked as if the entire cult vanished. They had. They went into the woods, eventually in West Virginia, where they camped on an old coal mining land. There they were supposed to have seen God or had some type of enlightening religious experience. But really, they were just all in shock. They had all taken part in the murder of five people, three of them innocent children. The spell that Lundgren had on them was beginning to break. This man was supposed to have brought them closer to God, but in reality, he laid a sin upon them that they would have to answer for for the rest of their lives and potentially afterwards. Now, Keith Johnson, if you remember, was one of the men who moved into Lundgren's home with him in the beginning with his wife, Kathy, and their four children. Well, Keith knew what was going to happen that night, and he had told Lundgren that he didn't care what happened to him, but he and his family were not going to be present that night in the barn, at the farmhouse. They weren't doing any of that. But the Johnsons did go into the wilderness with the group and came out with them. All unchanged, nothing had happened. By December of that year, all of the members that stayed were silently questioning and unhappy, but most likely stayed because they had been a part of what happened, the men especially having physically been responsible as well. But not Keith. He had not been there and he could no longer be a part of what was happening. He told his wife, Kathy, that he was leaving, but she decided she wanted to stay. Really? Yep. If he left, she told him she was going to leave him and stay with the Lundgrens, and he left anyway. Wow. It was December 31st, 1989, and he was going to leave this life with Lundgren and the decade behind. On that same day, Keith chose to go to the Kansas City, Missouri ATF office and report what had happened. Good. Good. 
He told them about the murder of the Averys and drew them a map of the barn on the property. And he also drew them a map of where the bodies would be found within the barn. After they verified this information several times with Keith, the ATF agents notified the Kirtland Police Department about the information they received. Once they had a warrant to go onto the property, the officers of the town, with the assistance of the fire department, went into the barn on the property on Euclid Chardon Road. According to Yarborough, the barn was damp, cold, dark, full of trash and rubble, and they had to do a lot of work clearing the area to get to where Keith Johnson had reported the bodies were. Once they got the area cleared, they could tell that the ground was made of a softer, spongier dirt, as if it had just been dug up. By the time they started digging, it was already getting dark. They knew they were going to find the bodies there. The chief and officer Andelsuk knew that this was always going to be the eventual outcome of what they had been trying to stop for a very long time. Once the first indication of human remains was unearthed, the digging stopped. Yarborough made the call that they were to resume first thing the following morning, and he requested the assistance of resources from the Lake County Sheriff's Department. The following morning, they were there. Just about eight months had passed, and the bodies were still decaying. It was a scene that no one present would ever forget. One of the crime scene techs said that the hardest part was that there was a water runoff in the barn, so as they were digging the pit, it was continuously filling with water, which made things so terrible because the bodies were decomposing. Oh my God. So the smell of death was so heavy in the air and the smell of the barn and the bodies and the water. It, um, he said it was something that did not leave him for months. I don't think that would ever leave me ever. No. You know? The bodies were later identified as the remains of all five members of the Avery family. Keith Johnson revealed the whole story and who was involved to the Lake County prosecutor. And with that information, the Lake County prosecutor was able to secure a multi-count felony indictment for Lundgren and 12 of his followers in connection with the death of the Avery family from a grand jury on January 5th. Two days later, Lundgren was arrested with his wife Alice and son Damon at a motel between San Diego, California and the Mexican border. So he was trying to probably skip town, right? Maybe he was trying to go to Mexico. The family did live for a short amount of time in San Diego. I think they had just relocated there. Um, but maybe he was trying to go to Mexico because it was really only a matter of time before somebody sp spilled what was happening because at this point the cult had completely dissolved. Okay. After this, things happened fast as there were a lot of members and a lot of charges. Um, and because of that, as soon as these members were arrested, they all started speaking. And that's how everything was able to happen so quickly. But because there's so many people that were indicted and involved in this, I will turn to the News Herald's timeline of prosecution from their article from 2014. OK, so January 10th of 1990, the coroner's office confirms that the bodies are that of 
the cult members and actually on the same day is when Daniel Kraft, Catherine Johnson, who was the wife of Keith, were taken into custody, also near San Diego. On March 7th, Richard E. Brand pled guilty on five counts of aggravated murder as part of a plea deal. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He was the first cult member to be convicted. On April 10th, 1990, a municipal judge in San Diego ordered cult leader Jeffrey Lundgren and followers Daniel Kraft and Katherine Johnson to be extradited to Ohio. A few days later, the Lake County prosecutor dropped charges against cult members Dennis and Tanya Patrick of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder and complicity to commit aggravated murder and kidnapping. And the reason for this non-involvement was that they were to be giving information about what happened that night. On April 25th, 1990, Gregory Winship pled guilty on five counts of um, complicity to murder as part of a plea deal, and he was sentenced to 15 years. Then cult member Sharon Bletchley pled guilty to five counts of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, and she was sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison. Remember his cousin, Debbie? Yeah. She pled guilty on five counts of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, and she was sentenced to 7 to 25 years. She served 14. Okay. 14 years. 14 years. Alice Lundgren is convicted by a jury in uh, Lake County, and of all five counts of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder... And the thing with Alice Lundgren was that she had been trying to say that she was an abused wife, but there's no excuse for what had happened. Jeffrey Lundgren's court case is going to begin on August 13th, 1990. And this is right after Susan Luff is sentenced to, again, 7 to 25 years in prison. Jeffrey Lundgren is found guilty by a jury of five counts of aggravated murder and kidnapping. Alice Lundgren is sentenced to 150 years to life in prison. Wow. Damon Lundgren is found guilty by a jury of four counts of aggravated murder and kidnapping. The jury in Jeffrey Lundgren's trial begins to deliberate on September 20th. It took them two hours before recommending Lundgren be sentenced to death in the electric chair. The following day, the judge agrees with the recommendation and sentences Jeffrey Lundgren to death. The jury in Damon Lundgren's trial recommends life imprisonment for all four counts. So he is sentenced to 120 years for each count. So he's basically serving four consecutive life terms. He'll be eligible for parole um, in 120 years. Fantastic. Daniel Kraft is sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. Ronald Luft, remember, he is the one who was bringing everyone into the barn. Mm-hmm. He's sentenced to 170 years. Catherine Johnson gets released from her prison sentence in 1991. So she really only spends one year in jail. Um, In 2010, 
Richard Brand was paroled after 19 years. Gregory Winship was paroled after 19 years in 2010. Sharon Bletchley served 19 years and was released. And as did Susan Luff. And on October 24th, 2006, Jeffrey Lundgren was executed by lethal injection at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. Still imprisoned are Daniel Kraft, who is eligible for parole in 2024. Ronald Luff will be eligible for parole in 2048. They did a very good job here getting prosecuting, ju- prosecuting and, and getting justice for this family. I mean, obviously nothing that they can do can bring them back, but you know, at least you can turn around and say, no, listen, every stone was unturned and they really did get everybody yes. that was involved. And Alice and Damon are not going to ever be able to leave prison. They'll be there for the rest of their lives. Yeah. It is just so sad that this man took advantage of such a vulnerable time in people's lives and manipulated their faith to make them do something that they now have to pay for for the rest of their lives, which they should because it's a decision that they made. But I just feel so horribly for the Avery family because they were victimized in so many different ways. It's a wild case. I mean, this this case was this, – this bothered me, but I mean it was a, it was a very good – way to like when you see how like that cult mentality kind of like just takes over everything yeah it it truly is a scary thing but eye-opening it is it's really sad and this i think is um the well the only gr- grace that we have here in this like this is atrocious what happened to this family but i'm glad that at least his other plans were also thwarted and that instead of doing that redeeming the vineyard plan they instead went into the wilderness because more people could have lost their lives in this situation and i'm glad that that plan never came to fruition i'm also glad we kind of owe that to the people who uh defected and went and told yeah uh, like hey listen this is what's going on here because i mean like those are like I don't want to say they're the heroes, but they brought light to what was going on that really True. did need to happen. They could have just left and stayed quiet and stayed scared, but right. instead they went to law enforcement. And also we did have some vigilant members of the local police department that really stayed up on everything that was happening. Right. And we needed that to happen here too, because if that didn't happen, then they wouldn't have even showed up that day. It's like everything needed to happen a certain way and it, and it kind of did right. for there to be justice here. Exactly. But it's just sad that five people and three, you know, five people and three children had to die for that to take place. I agree. But oh my gosh. Well, that is the end of our Kirtland Colt Killings case. Um, but before we go, what we want to do is we want to say thank you so much to our new supporters on Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the episodes. So just a big thank you to Kinley Quillen, Angel English. Laura Aalto Siltala, Molly Textera, Kaylee Lewis, Kayla Callahan, Leah, Heather, Joe Pavlish, Aubrey Rusky, Shandy Urena, Linda Porter, L. Caitlin, Hurtis Friola, Rex Dottier, Reedy, True Crime Mum. It's always nice. Say mom instead of mom. Gives us a reason. Mom. <laughs> Christina Butcher, 
Paula Hoover, Mary Holden, Melanie Ridgway upped her pledge, Chantel, Amy Powers, Emily Diaz, Ruby Lemus, Ali Rodriguez Goodman, Keaton Farmer, Sabrina Bird, and Taylor Connor. Thanks so much for joining, and we hope you're enjoying the backlog and all the future episodes to come. Just one more thing before we go. We really would, we know it's a lot to ask, but it would be really helpful for us if you just shared our episodes with whatever social media platform you're associated with or to just leave us a comment. It's really what helps get our na- gets our names out there to other people. Yeah. And we'd just really appreciate that because it's good to get our name out there and I feel like you know, we don't always have the best traction being such an indie podcast. So that would be really helpful if you could just leave us a review or share an episode. All right, guys. Until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys.